I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, everyone. I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm recording this a bit early because I'm away uh, next week. I'm going to, to Helsinki, which I've never been to before, which is very exciting. It seems to have better weather than London does at the moment, so that's something. So I'm recording this on the afternoon of Thursday, the 13th of June, and Boris Johnson is very clearly going to be Britain's next Prime Minister. So if I sound a bit down, then look at the news. But we're not going to talk about that today. What we are, in fact, going to talk about again, same as last week, but it's a regular topic. We're going to talk about housing, which, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably fine with that. You're probably quite interested in housing, really. But this week we have two excellent interviewees. Firstly, our, our regular Ask the Experts slot with, with Paul Swinney of the Centre for Cities. I was very excited and I discovered, well, they told me about their latest report, which is on the, the wealth gap created by the housing crisis because essentially house prices in and around London have been soaring ahead of house prices literally everywhere else. And they've quantified that a bit. That came out this week as as I'm recording this. And I thought that would be a, a nice interview to pair up with, with the main attraction this week. That's an interview with a guy called John Bowton, who is the author of, well, firstly, a blog called Municipal Dreams, off the back of which he's written a book called Municipal Dreams, which is basically a history of social housing in Britain, which I, I read last year. It's a fantastic book. And I was very excited to go and get to speak to him. So we'll start with him. And then, you know, halfway through at an appropriate moment where it seems like a right, the right moment in the chronology, we'll go chat to Paul. Might as well get on with it, really. So I am sat in the living room of a rather nice flat in Spitalfields in the heart of London's East End with the author John Bowden. He's been very kind enough to welcome me into his home to talk about his his book, Municipal Dreams, which is just coming out as a paperback now. John, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much for agreeing to, to chat to me about uh, Municipal Dreams. It's a history of, of social housing in Britain. It, I believe, is... As of a spin-off from a blog you've been writing for a long time on the subject. So let's start there. Like, why, why did you first get interested in, in social housing as kind of a topic for research? Well, as you mentioned, the blog started about five years ago. And that really just, I mean, it derived from my, my background as a, as a social historian, as a history teacher, amongst other things. But really just from a walk around local streets and, and just noticing the sheer presence of, of local government, libraries, schools, health clinics, but most of all, of course, housing, council housing. 
So the blog initially started out as a, an attempt to record and to, to celebrate that, that record. Obviously, council housing has become a hugely important subject recently. Uh, social housing has always been probably the major sort of contribution of local government to, to people's living standards and, and needs. And it seemed very really important to, to celebrate that particular history, to record it. Council housing at peak housed around a third of the population in the early 1980s. There were over five million council homes. And yet, oddly to me, it seemed a very neglected history, uh, nothing really in the mainstream. And also often a very misrepresented, sometimes a very maligned history. So the, the book, the blog and the book were an attempt to, to set the record straight, not to sort of gloss over some of the, the, the missteps and mistakes along the way, but basically to tell a, a story of actually a proud and important record and a really important part of our social history. It is weirdly invisible as an idea, isn't it? Like considering how, you know, how dominant the sort of theme of local government it was for most of the 20th century, it's sort of like not in the public debate now. And also it's kind of invisible in a different sense. And if you walk around London, you will pass a lot of council estates. You won't necessarily pass through them or think about them. Why do you think it's not sort of higher in the, in the public consciousness as this kind of huge part of the, well, the welfare state, really? Yeah, well, I hope that's changing slightly, and perhaps that's something we'll talk about. I think there, I think there is more interest in what we now have to call social housing. It has gone through a, a period of sort of marginalisation, at best in a sense, and actually, as I, as I mentioned, a real kind of demonisation in some cases. So I think that's been a part of the story of the last 40 years, going further back. As I said, you know, a huge, a huge part of our, our shared story. And my favourite statistic, if you're a part of the early post-war generation, is a one in two chance of you having lived part of your life in council housing. So it's a good question you raise. I think there's a degree of kind of uh, othering, that's a, to use the jargon, by sort of the policymakers and politicians. But I think if you, if you talk to, I hate the phrase, but if you talk to, to, to ordinary people, you'd actually get a much more sort of positive and, and more salient perspective on, on, on their personal experience of council housing, which is overwhelmingly positive. It's, a, I mean, it's a fantastic book, which I, I read last year to review for the, the New Statesman. One of the things I like about it, apart from the fact, like, considering it you know, as a social history title, it's incredibly readable. It's like, you know, it really sort of, you know, moves along. But one of the things I quite liked about it is it's sort of like oddly structured like a Shakespearean tragedy. Like, because you start in the prologue with Grenfell, the Grenfell Tower fire, and you know, you sort of know how the story is going to end. So through the early chapters where it's all about idealism and, you know, the, the you know the political class finally getting to grips with a major social problem and they're doing stuff for the public good, there's always this kind of looming sort of tragedy in the background that you know is what we're working towards. I mean, was that a very conscious thing or was it just you happened to be writing as that event was taking place? Well, thank you for the comparison <laughs> to, to Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet in social housing terms is what yes. I'm saying here. But seriously, Grenfell, of course, was, was actually, it goes without saying, the most awful thing. And I'd actually completed the, 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 what I thought was the final draft of the book the week before the Grenfell fire. So obviously that entailed the revision. I mean, as you say, there is, a, there is a trajectory anyway in terms of the rise and fall, which is the subtitle of the, of, of the title of the book. I hope we'll get to, to, rise, uh, to, to write a, a follow-up uh, on the rise again. But... Um, Yes, there is that sort of tragic element, I, I, I guess, to it. And Grenfell really kind of put that in a very sharp and uh, brutal light. Mm. So let's kind of work, let's start with the history. Let's start with the origins of social housing. Where did it come from as a sort of sense? Where did it come from an idea that housing was a thing that local government should be responsible for? 
Well, it emerges in the mid to late 19th century. I date the first council housing as emerging in Liverpool in 1869, built by a Tory corporation. And they actually offered the scheme to, to the private sector. They said, uh, here are the plans, you build it, you take the profit. And there was no interest. The uh, interest of the private sector, as it always has in my view, lies in the speculative profits uh, for middle-class, more expensive housing. So I guess in a very straightforward sense, council housing, local authority housing emerges simply through the, the failure of the private sector to provide decent, affordable housing to those on lower incomes. But of course, the context in the, in the later 19th century was industrialisation, urbanisation, unprecedented scale of uh, squalor and slum housing that emerges in that time. And a whole range of concerns, health concerns, morality concerns, concerns about crime, alleged criminality amongst sort of in, in slum housing. So you have these sort of elite fears, if you will, of the, the social and political consequences of, of bad housing. You actually have a turn of the century, a fear that the, working, the British working class is, is increasingly unfit, uncompetitive. And so that sort of health concern has a sort of almost a sort of political capitalistic kind of uh, anger perspective to it, if you will. Pressure from below, of course, a, a growing labour movement. So essentially, I think, obviously, necessity, people needed decent housing, but, but actually, fundamentally, the, the realisation that the state had to get involved because it couldn't be sold through the free market. I mean, something that came through to me is it does also sort of come through these concerns about public health as well. That's kind of in the mix, isn't it? It's sort of it, in the same way that, like, the you know, the... Joseph Bazalgette and his sewers kind of don't happen because of any, or, or not entirely because of a charitable impulse, but because of the fear that if this isn't solved, then it's going to be a problem for people who aren't in the underclass too. And the sense I got from the book is that maybe the housing stuff comes from that same sort of like slightly self-centred impulse on behalf of the governing classes. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a, definitely a, a significant component of the kind of concern that, that arises in, in, in this time. Yeah, as you indicate, the, the kind of the understanding of disease at the time was was, was spread, spread through bad air, miasma. Obviously, therefore, that you know would would not respect the sort of uh, proprieties of Victorian social divisions. So that fear of disease is spreading to respectable, so-called respectable localities, and and people are certainly a, a big part. And some of the earliest social houses built in London are actually very close to where we are right now, right? At Arnold Circus, which is um, just off Shoreditch High Street. Um, and those flats now go, for, so the ones in the private sector now go for millions, don't they? It's in the book, actually. There's a, there's a, there's a quote in the book, uh, walking up Brick Lane, just nearby, looking in the estate agent's window, and there's a, a flat in uh, the Boundary Estate advertised as ideal for the city professional. And it, it just feels to me like that's a measure of like the quality of those early council houses, is they weren't being built as kind of a sort of home of last resort, which is how they're often portrayed in our public debate now. They, you know, these were high quality homes being built for you know the respectable working classes, as they were known. Yes, very much so. Owen Fleming, who was the chief architect for the London County Council, which built the Boundary Estate, brought real idealism, but actually real sort of practical design concern, architectural quality to the build, not only in the appearance of the of the estate in kind of arts and craft touches and obviously say Arnold Circus, the garden at the centre of the estates with the bandstand uh, for the pleasure of courting couples as Owen Fleming described it. So a very humane vision. But that matched of course not only with sort of inside toilets and so on but um, matched with lights that were designed to catch the sunlight and, and so on. So and sturdily built. 
Yeah, it's not just better quality than a lot of council housing you see in this now. It's frankly better quality than a lot of new builds. <laughs> but let's let's kind of move the story on a bit. So you've got this kind of trickle from the, the late 19th century onwards. It feels to me like the floodgates sort of open after World War One. that it becomes like a really major function of local government. Is that, have I got the timing right there? Yeah, that's, that's very much the case. So we built around 24,000 council homes before the First World War, about 10,000 in London. But we built 1.1 million by 1939. And as you say, quite rightly, the, the First World War, the Homes for Heroes, that, that sort of that rhetoric and that brief sort of spasm of idealism that uh, actuated sort of politics in the post, post-war post phase was really important to that. We're, it's, it's appropriate, of course, that we're speaking in 2019. We're celebrating the centenary of the 1919 Housing Act, Christopher Addison's Housing Act. And that, in terms of, for the first time, imposing a degree of compulsion on councils to build and also providing a generous uh, financial support, as well as, as we mentioned already, actually really imposing very high quality standards of design and, and planning really was a, a breakthrough moment. I mean, the interwar period is is obviously a huge boom time for, for private housing as well. Like you kind of look at like the, just on the most basic level, the footprint of London and other cities massively expands in that period. That's that's kind of when cities are growing out along railway lines and roads and so on. How did this council housing being built in that period differ from the, the private housing? Like, did it kind of look similar or were they very different things? They weren't hugely different, but they were dis- distinctively different. And that was, of course, as much as anything else, a, a sort of choice made by the private builders for middle class who very much wanted to differentiate their homes, their res- respectable middle class homes from the sort of solid housing, plainer housing being built by local authorities. So I, I, I guess if you if you look at a, a middle class suburb, you, you might notice bay windows and a few sort of decorative touches. Typically, local authority housing is, is plainer, a little bit little boxier, if you will, and, and probably slightly smaller. Certainly, so far as the, the, the better off working class, uh, better off middle class were concerned. Yeah, I mean that that's the kind of conscious differentiation mm. that occurred. But this is the age of am I going to get this phrase right? The cottage garden estate is that? Ever? Yeah, the cottage estate or the garden the, suburb. Yes. Suburb. Yeah. Where it's, you know, it is kind of low-rise housing estates rather than what we, you know, if you, I think a lot of people today, if you say council housing, would tend to think of the kind of, you know, 60s stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas these are just kind of, they're just kind of little semi-detached houses with their own little garden and their own plot and so on. Yeah, and that is actually, of course, the overwhelming story of council housing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you quite understandably focus on the 60s and, and mm-hmm. even even then you're, you're focusing on actually a relatively small element of council housing, though a very uh, significant and kind of iconic moment which is high-rise point blocks tower blocks etc but actually even in the post-war period 45 to 79 two-thirds of council homes were actually traditional brick-built two-story houses but as you also say even more so into in, in the interwar period which is the great phase of these new cottage suburbs t- typically built on the periphery of the major cities. So when does the first high-rise arrive? Well, it arrives, I can date that fairly precisely, it's, it arrives really in 1951 in Harlow, in Harlow, Newtown. That's that's earlier than you would think, isn't it? I, I think like a lot of people sort of associate high-rises with the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, and it's a slow burn, and uh, the lawn, which is the, the sort of bucolic name of the first high-rise in, in Harlow, is only 11 stories high, and it's uh, a fairly isolated element of a, of a much sort of, of a, a much larger low-rise scheme and so what, I mean, what, what, what I find interesting about high-rise and, and its kind of emergence and growth 
is that kind of, uh, it's the evolution that takes place, it's the sort of growth to higher building and more uh, larger schemes that, that emerges, as you say, really through to the, to the 1960s. One of the things that struck me about the book is the way that you write so cogently about council architecture departments in this period. Like you've got these incredibly sort of young, idealistic architects who think they're going to change the world and they do this by choosing to work for, for local councils. And some of them really are incredibly young. Like there are, there are estates that are still inhabited now being designed by people aged 23, 24. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and these still exist. I mean, this, it is not where you would expect the ambitious architect to base themselves these days, I guess is what I'm saying. It's a very changed world, but you're absolutely right. Sandy Wilson, who, later, who worked for the LCC, London County Council Architects Department, but later designed the British Library, described working and had a job advert for the LCC as a call to arms, a call to, to serve the country, uh, to build them to peace, essentially, after, after the destruction of war. And you get that kind of language and understanding repeated. And you're absolutely right, of course, about these young young architects, Powell and Moyer, I think perhaps the people you were referring to, uh, who were aged 23 and 24, described the, designed the Churchill Gardens estate in Westminster, which is actually one of the finest council estates in the country, uh, and certainly has stood the test of time. Kate McIntosh, who, who is still alive and well and kicking and fighting the cause of council housing, social housing, designed uh, Dawson's Heights in Dulwich, again in her 20s. Yes, and I, I, I always forget the figures, but, but the, the number of architects working in the public sector into the, into the mid-70s was, I think, around 70%, and it's now around 1%, 1 or 2%. Mm. And that's just a, a mark of the kind of sea change that occurred in 79, basically this, this desecration of the public, public sector, public service, the public service ethos, and this shift to free market dominance. So the obvious question here is, where did it all go wrong? And you've got you, all these sort of idealists like rebuilding Britain after the war, building you know, huge numbers of council housing. And within sort of 10, 15 years, everything is completely changed. And council housing is coming out at a trickle again. And it's seen as kind of last resource. It's not seen as this kind of ideal place to be. I mean, what, what changes? How does that happen? Yeah. Yes, what went wrong? I always put that in, in scare quotes I, when, when I'm talking. I, you, your listeners will have to kind of imagine scare quotes at, at this point. Because a lot didn't go wrong. You know, mostly council homes have continued to provide decent housing for the, the vast majority of its residents. Council house, housing communities are, are stable and popular, and perhaps more so now than they, they, they were in the 80s and 90s. But that aside, it's, it's, uh, it's a really important question as, as to what changed. And I think a whole raft of things changed. I mean, the, the simple thing is obviously to point to system building, some of the mistakes that were in, uh, made in, the co in construction design in the 60s and early 70s, Ronan Point, of course, the collapse of the Ronan Point Tower block in Newham in 1968 is, is conventionally taken to mark, no pun intended, because four people were killed, but conventionally taken to mark the death knell of, of high-rise, certainly system-built high-rise. So that's a, a fairly straightforward point. There's no doubt that there were mistakes made and consequences of those. And then, of course, you get a spiral. In that context, you get a spiral where particular states are badly built or designed. Uh, they become hard to let. And you have this kind of downward spiral in terms of not only the, the built environment, but, if you will, the social environment of, of those particular states. There's, there's a critique which I, which I 
strongly challenge around the design of modernist estates in the cities, the streets in the sky, the deck access estates, some of the uh, multi-storey designs were flawed, that uh, they created opportunities for crime and antisocial behaviour. This is the sort of defensible space thesis, which I think actually is wholly misplaced because what I would argue, in fact, is that actually those estates, alongside actually very ordinary cottage estates, low-rise estates, were the victims of much larger forces from the 70s. And I guess a fundamental thesis of, of the book is that, you know, whereas we've often talked about failing estates, we should actually talk about failed politics, failed economics. Uh, in my perspective, in my interpretation, council housing, council estates were the victim of uh, political choices and economic dynamics which really hit those communities very hard. You're basically talking about lack of money for maintenance and lack of economic opportunities for the people who lived on these states. Well, certainly straightforwardly, and I think I think uh, even from the mid-70s, pre-Thatcher, housing departments, local authorities did take their eye off the ball. They were failing to maintain their estates sufficiently. You, have to, you need that continued investment in those homes as you do in any home. So I think that was one issue. Obviously... What happens from 1980, 81 is right to buy. Uh, we lost about, uh, we lost 2.4 million homes through right to buy. Sorry, for anyone who doesn't know right to buy, is literally the right to, for council tenants to buy their home at a massive discount introduced by Margaret Thatcher's government as a way of creating more homeowners and thus more Tory voters, I think was the theory, which obviously meant a massive reduction in, in housing stock and a lot of assets on the part of the councils. Yes, and of course uh, the money, the, the, the income that was generated through those sales went very largely to the Treasury, went to central government. Uh, local authorities were effectively barred from building new council homes in the 80s and 90s and, and, and beyond. So the combination of right to buy that loss of housing stock and the failure to, to renew and, and replace it has had a sort of catastrophic effect on, on social housing in terms of reducing the available stock and increasingly leaving council housing, social housing, as a residual provision, as you said at the start, housing of last resort, housing for the, the most vulnerable. And that in itself is a big is a big shift, right? Because once upon a time, council housing was seen as like, you know, it wasn't the, for the, the, the poorest people, it was for those, um, I mean, you phrase, respectable working classes, it was for people with aspiration. And at some point around the 70s, that shifts with this idea of residualization, and it becomes the place where you go when you can't afford anything else. Yes, and I think that became the kind of uh, understanding. It, it emerges from the, from the 1960s. I think, of course, owner-occupation is, is, a, is a goal, and it's something that, I mean, certainly, as you're absolutely right, and I, I want to emphasise this point, that council housing was aspirational housing for the vast majority of its lifetime, a step up for many millions of British people. And of course, it's it's actually aspirate, it would be aspirational housing now if, if people could get off the waiting list and mm. actually acquire a, a decent council home of their own. So I think I, I don't sneer at the word aspiration. I think it's uh, and I think uh, social housing has really fulfilled that um, ethos, but in the past. But you're quite right. Things changed. I think part in the 60s, partly through owner occupation, the spread of owner occupation, but more particularly through the kind of the marginalisation of social housing that emerges from the 80s. So what, what, I mean, what, what happens, of course, in, in uh, the other thing, the kind of perfect storm of things that happen really from the mid-70s is not only you know, the structural changes taking place within the, the housing sector that we've discussed, 
but a, po- a political choice, I say a wholly progressive choice, a wholly necessary policy, which was basically needs-based allocation, mm-hmm. the Housing Homeless Persons Act in 1977, gives for the first time uh, a statutory right to the, to the poorest and those people with sort of health needs, gives them a statutory right to council housing, which is, as I say, a, a, an entirely progressive and necessary measure, but it combines quite dangerously, shall we say, with that reduction of housing stock, because it really does mean that in terms of new allocations from the 80s and 90s, it's increasingly the poorest people and often the people people with, with other other issues, other baggage, if you will, that get council houses. So the, the council states are seen as, in that context, less respectable, less safe, even in some cases. And that has a knock-on effect, right? It means that people are more like, some of the people already on those estates are more likely to think, oh, maybe I should move on, because the estates become slightly less comfortable places to live. Yeah, and you get yeah, and you and you find that very very clearly expressed. And of course, there's, there's a degree of prejudice in some of these comments, uh, some misunderstanding, and some some injustice directed towards those people moving to the new homes. But absolutely, you know, established residents, those who who who'd lived in those uh, homes and those estates for for years, kind of looked quite askance and express very directly the kind of their, their fears and concerns about the new residents moving in and, and what it means to their their community, their their sense of security and wellbeing. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So once again, here I am in the very beautiful offices of the Centre for Cities in London's highly fashionable London Bridge District. I'm here with Head of Policy, Paul Swinney, and we're going to talk about, uh, there are, there's a couple of topics that are very dear to this podcast heart. There's firstly the housing crisis, and secondly the North-South divide. We talk about those two a lot separately. We don't tend to talk about them together. But your latest report, Paul, argues that there, there are some ways in which they're the same thing, right? They're very, very closely interlinked. If you look at 
how we've seen an increase in value of houses over the last sort of six or seven years, the span which we've got there, the data for. And what you see has been a huge increase in equity in homes. So that's great for homeowners. You know, they're seeing the value of their assets increase. But if you look at the geography of this, what you see is that that increase in equity is mainly for homeowners in the greater southeast. So some figures since 2013, the average amount of equity that is in the average house of a homeowner in Burnley has increased by £5,000. In London, it's increased by £122,000. So what that means is that the average homeowner in London is £122,000 better off over the last sort of five or six years you know, through no effort of their own, effectively. It's just the value of their house has increased. I mean, don't don't they don't they deserve it? As you know, if they've they've, they've worked hard, they've, they've made smart investment choices. I mean, why, why shouldn't the good people of London get all this free money for, for owning a home? <laughs> well, it's very much fluke, really, isn't it? It just happens to be that they're in the the right place at the right time. Of which I am one of them. Declare that I am a homeowner in London, and um, so I have inadvertently benefited from this through no effort of my own. That I just needed somewhere to live. I was lucky enough to be able to 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 get somewhere to buy somewhere, and then the value of my my wealth has gone up. Now, the question here is, why is that? Well, the principal reason is because there's been a policy choice to allow this to happen. Now, it might have been implicit rather than explicit, but through the fact that we haven't built enough homes, and because demand has increased greater than supply, and we're particularly not building enough homes in cities in the greater southeast where demand is the highest, what we're seeing is that homeowners in the greater southeast are then seeing this big boom, this big increase in the amount of wealth that they've got. Okay, are you, I mean, I, I think there are probably people out there, wrong, massively incorrect and ill-informed people, but people nonetheless, who would say, well, how is that a policy choice? Like, you know, London is building the number of homes that London can build. What's that going to do with the government? Well, the planning system is in a position where it deems that any development is illegal until the local planning authority decides that it is legal. So what you have to do is go forward to the plan- to the planning powers that be, the planning gods, and say, I want to build something. And then through perhaps a set of, of decisions, which may be a little bit arbitrary because we don't have any rules base, we don't have any rules sort of to, to stick to in the planning system. It's just how, how effectively sort of the planning authorities sort of view whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, whatever good or bad actually means. They deem whether it's a, that something will go forward or not. What that means is that we're not building the houses that we need or the volume of houses that we need. Demand has increased much faster than what the increase in supply has. And basic economics tells you that prices will go up. Now, if you're a homeowner then holding an asset where there's a, a chronic undersupply of something that you own, then the price is going to spiral and the value of your wealth then increases as a result or the value of your asset increases as a result. So... I don't think we, you know, when we talk about planning and particularly people who are quite anti-development, they talk about, oh, no, we protect our spaces or it's going to put pressure on local services or we've got to protect the green belt. They're all valid concerns. What they probably, or I don't think they realise, perhaps some people do realise, what they don't realise is that this has a huge impact on inequality and geographic inequality across the country and that certain parts of society Homeowners in the Great South East are really winning from this from this planning decision. Who's losing out? Renters in the Great South East who are paying ever higher rents to go into the pockets of landlords uh, and people elsewhere in the country who are seeing this broadening divide. I mean, on the most basic level, like I mean, increasingly we hear about you know people only being able to buy thanks to the help of the bank and mum and dad. 
If your particular branch of the bank and mum and dad is based in Burnley, they're going to be a lot less sort of useful to you than if they happen to be based in, I don't know, Croydon or something, aren't they? I mean, they literally do not have the equity to help you with. This is is a big issue. And, you know, we've only got the data going back to 2013 in terms of looking at mortgage data. But this didn't start just in 2013. It's been a long running mm-hmm. issue. And yes, you know, if you are... If you have lived in the Great Southeast for a long time and your kids are about to fly the nest and you might want to downsize, all of a sudden you've got this massive, massive amount of money which you can then use to support your kids to get onto the housing ladder. Whereas, yes, further north, that is not the case. And this is part of the problem. So, you know, when it then comes to people trying to access the opportunity that London offers, increasingly because of high house prices and because of high rents, you know, we are shutting those people out of that opportunity, which is a bad thing. Are we absolutely sure that the reason London house prices are so high is supply and demand rather than... I mean, it does also have some of the characteristics of a financial bubble, right? A lot of money has poured into not just London, but a lot of other sort of major world cities because there haven't been other assets to, to put that finance in. But that doesn't mean it's kind of sustainable or that this is kind of... or that the fundamentals suggest that the prices should be where they are. I mean, is it possible that actually give it a couple of years, something's going to happen that means that bubble's going to burst. Always we should be aware, I think, of financial bubbles. But if we look at the fundamentals in terms of what it, what's going on, you see London's population grown pretty rapidly, I think, over the last sort of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And we see that the number of houses being built is not responding to that. So that would suggest that there isn't, you know, famous last words probably, that would suggest that there isn't a, a particular bubble that's building, especially when you look at, I think, what's happened to, to house prices in London and in Cambridge and places like that since the financial crash is we've seen, you know, house prices fell, but then they're hugely higher now than what they were at the peak before sort of the recession in 2008. If you then look at other places across the country, like, say, Burnley or Wakefield or Barnsley, or Sheffield, you see that house prices haven't really increased at all. So this is very much sort of in line with the geography of demand for housing across across the country. And it seems that the, the strength of the economy is having a big bearing on this. So it doesn't seem that this is something to do with a financial bubble. That isn't to say that there isn't a little bit of hubris that may have played into the system, but it doesn't seem to be mm. the fundamental driver. Okay, so what do we do? We build more homes. I know that's... A, 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 yeah, that's good. I'm that. <laughs> that's, I've, got, I've got it on a T-shirt. <laughs> that's I a policy. do have it on a T-shirt. <laughs> that's a policy suggestion that is, is very quite close to your heart, especially when you wear that T-shirt. Mm-hmm. You know, fundamentally, we need to build more houses in the places where, where we need them. You know, we talk about a, a but, national housing crisis, but it isn't. It's a, it's a very strong geography to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, this is... Like, often there are certain people on the internet who we've both had this recurring argument with... Who, who will pick out certain things and say, look, there is clearly not a national shortage of houses. And it's like, that may well be true, but we do not live in the aggregate UK. We live in individual cities, and in particular cities like London and Oxford and Brighton and Bristol and so on, there is very definitely a shortage of housing. But it has been the policy of every government since the year dot to build more houses. It's the policy of every significant opposition party to build more houses. They always say they're going to do it. And yet it never happens. What are the things that we actually need to do to kind of bring this into reality? We need to change the way the planning system works. So it's taking it, it's moving away from this position where it is illegal 
to do any new development until the planning gods say that it's that it's so to a, a system which is much more rules based so you're going into it and you understand what the criteria are what you have to do and what you're not allowed to do and then there's a final say so from from planning departments but it's very clear and transparent in terms of what will get the go ahead and what won't get the go ahead at the moment you know there aren't any any rules in place um it is very much down to the to the wishes, for want of a better word, or, or ideals of the local planning department in terms of what goes forward and what doesn't. And that's very different to what we see, um, particularly in Japan, and what we see in some parts of America, where it's much more sort of pro-development. And, you know, this is going to go ahead unless there's a fundamental reason why it shouldn't. You know, in the UK, it's very much the other way around. That the answer is no until you prove to us that, you know, it absolutely should go ahead. Actually, we, uh, we, we republished one of your very fine blogs, well, not one of yours, one of uh, your colleague Anthony Breach's very fine blogs on what the UK housing market can learn from Tokyo. And it was a bit of a sleeper hit, that one. That did quite, quite nice traffic for us. So there's clearly a lot of hunger for this, uh, for knowledge about the Japanese model of planning. So People love Japan, turns out. Yeah. <laughs> Just final question. We're going to talk about all this stuff about the planning system. Is there enough land, or do we also need to be rethinking the green belt? Just out of interest. We need to be thinking about all different ways that we're going to try and increase the amount of land supply. Um, that might be about building up more in den- in, within city centres, more tall towers. In suburbs, it might be about you know, increasing densities. In our suburbs, particularly our successful places, are very low density. You know, semi-detached houses, detached houses, perhaps that's not where we should be. And then finally, yes, we should definitely be having a conversation about the green belt. Now, that isn't the uh, building on the, the beautiful green fields that usually get put up that are in the middle of nowhere that certain media outlets like the, to put on their front pages when they talk about this. It's about building on the edge of cities. You know, and a lot of this land, while it's got the, sort of the, the brand green belt, actually isn't very green and isn't particularly pleasant. And we need to be having a sensible conversation about building there and not constraining our more successful cities. Because if we do, what it means we're not building enough houses, that affects the ability of people to get to get the housing they require in the places where they want it. And it also means that it's also fueling this inequality that we're seeing across the country as well. Okay, so to sum up, build more bloody houses. Absolutely. Excellent. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. So, 1997, the Tory government falls after 18 years. Labour is elected. Is it a bright new dawn for council housing? What happens next? Like you'd think after all that, maybe that maybe everything would get better. Yeah, you'd, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? But but not really. Not 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 for council housing. That's that's certainly the case. I think one of the, one, one of my criticisms of the new Labour. Everything's contextual. We have you know you have to kind of understand the politics of the day. But certainly, new Labour was fairly hostile to council housing. It's fairly hostile to to local authority housing management and so on. And so New Labour, the third way, of course, placed a lot of its uh, hopes uh, in, the, in the third sector. And so to the extent, to the fairly small extent, that there was a revival of social housing, it, it really lay with, within the housing associations and so on. And in that respect, in terms of, you do have a lot of regeneration going on at this time, but, but actually Labour continues the, the policies of the preceding Tory governments in terms of funding regeneration, but, but doing so in a way which skewed it very, very powerfully towards housing associations which which forced councils to transfer their housing stock and so on. Uh, so there's certainly no revival of council housing mm. under, under New Labour. That is an ideological choice, isn't it? That's like the assumption is that councils can't do the job properly. So all the mechanisms around funding are to encourage councils to shift stuff over to housing associations or to arms management, ALMOs, 
or to use PFI, I think was the other option, which was you know, effectively getting the private sector in. Councils were just not seen as capable of doing it themselves, which is quite a turnaround, given that 30 years ago they were basically building the country. Yes, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? And, and as I say, I think you kind of have to put yourself back into that mindset. I don't, I don't defend it. I think it was mistaken. I mean, it's I mean, it's, it's an interesting period. And I, I was a local councillor through some of this time. I mean, it's a very interesting period of politics, and we, and we judge it. We tend to, well, many people judge New Labour harshly nowadays. Some, some of your listeners will. But I think it, it, it was the case that um, local councils ha- were seen by the 1970s and housing departments in particular were seen as being kind of fairly bureaucratic and unresponsive. There, there was this sense that mistakes had been made. And certainly there was a belief that the, the third sector, the housing association, would be more kind of nimble and responsive and, and accountable. I mean, I think what's, what's actually important to emphasise is the degree to which um, local government, local councils have really cleaned up their act, actually. And this actually does begin in the 1980s, where you do get local councils reorganising, becoming far more, to use the jargon, sort of customer-centred and focused. So I think there is a change, but it wasn't one that central government had recognised uh, by 1997. Certainly nowadays, I think, uh, ironically, in some respects, it's housing associations which become kind of more corporate, more... Uh, capitalistic almost in, in, in some respects and uh, local local authorities which have remained truer to the uh, social housing ideal and actually increasingly well managed increasingly responsive not perfect none of us are but um, much better than they used to be well let's bring the story right up to date what's happened in this area under the current government which is now nine years old it's getting on a bit really if you think there's one government what, what has it done in the in the whole area of social housing and how has that fed into what well, I think is a bit of a revival of the idea that this might be the way out of the crisis? Yes, well, it's, it's been an interesting kind of journey, I guess, over, over since 2010. Certainly Cameron and Osborne were very hostile to council housing. It's a famous quote from Nick Clegg, who, of course, was complicit by his uh, sort of innocence, that uh, either Cameron or, or Osborne described council housing as a petri dish for, for Labour voters. So they were they were politically hostile in that sense, but I think also certainly ideologically hostile to council housing. Oddly, Theresa May has really kind of shifted that policy. I mean, well, she hasn't. A minimal she's, impact. she's been quite busy. I she's think. been busy on other things, and now she's going. So now she's going. So we'll see what happens. But she did herald a, a change in attitude. She 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 actually described in in the uh, introducing the social housing green paper. Last year, she described council housing has provided the greatest collective, the biggest collective leap in living standards of the last century. So there was a recognition of its contribution and, and of its future future role. And so there's been small steps, uh, two billion pounds, which is which is actually a drop in the ocean, but two billion two billion pounds funding. But much more importantly, obviously the the lifting of borrowing caps. Uh, so local authorities are now being being allowed to to borrow and to invest and to, and to build. Uh, and, and so we are seeing a revival, small scale, but significant and hopefully a sort of harbinger, a prelude of things to come. Something I find interesting about the way the debate has shifted the last couple of years is I have had conversations with quite right-wing Tories, you know, people from Thatcherite think tanks and so on, saying that actually they now think that council housing is probably the best way of getting us out of the housing crisis. And that does feel like a shift to me, that it's now... A lot of the ideological objections are starting to drop away because letting the market rip has turned out to be so bad for, for so many people that now actually we kind of need, we, we need to kind of look at other options again. 
Absolutely. We need, uh, it's estimated we need around 300,000 new homes a year. We've only ever achieved that total when around 100 and 150,000 homes of, of those homes were, were council, council built. So history teaches us that lesson, but the present certainly teaches us that lesson. We're not reaching that target, nowhere near it. And last year we only built uh, around 6,400 new social rent homes. So it's clear that if that is your target, that's a government target, 300,000 or so, that you know, maybe a third or more of those, you know, just statistically, uh, practically speaking, have to be social rent homes. And so that has to be supported. And I think, I think you're right. I think there is a, a change. It's, 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 it's grudging in, in some respects, but I think there is a kind of a recognition of necessity, at least, which, which is that the, the, the basically the sort of the free market model that was adopted by the Tories from 79 has, has failed. Uh, home ownership has fallen by 8% in recent years. Uh, house prices obviously are, particularly in London and South East, unaffordable to, to many people. We've got generation rent, people that will, will never, don't aspire and can't uh, realistically hope to, to own their own homes. And, you know, a model based on uh, high or, and rising house prices can only, in, in crude political terms, can, can only benefit those already on the ladder, as it were, already, already in, in, uh, owning homes. So there's a huge swathe of the electorate that's basically not served by the current model, alienated by the politics of the current model. And even in party political terms, I think Conservatives just will we'll have to shift ground to, to build the homes we need, decent, affordable homes to the majority of the population. Social housing, capital housing has to be a big part of that mix. So we've talked a lot about uh, politics and policy in this podcast. Let's kind of like wrap up by asking a slightly different question. Like, what, what are your, You've obviously spent a lot of time looking at council estates. What are your favourites? What are the best ones? If someone really wanted to kind of visit sort of examples of the best of kind of you know, public housing in this country, what should they see? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Well, I, I, I try to be Catholic, and, I, and, and in many ways the book is a deliberate celebration of the ordinary. It's not supposed to be a sort of guided tour of the kind of uh, star architect, the sort of showpiece of states. So I don't disdain the ordinary by any, by any means. But there are, that said, there are some, some, some fantastic estates. Funnily enough, I, I guess we've mentioned a couple already. I think Churchill Gardens, which won, won the Civic Trust Award for the best estate of the last the best building of the last 40 years is, is a classic example. So Churchill Gardens in Pimlico, uh, and I've been there a few times and I've met residents and they, they certainly love and cherish their estate. So that's a good example. I think Dawson's Heights, Kate McIntosh in, 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 in Dulwich, that, again, you mentioned it, is, a, is, a, is another stunning example, beautiful, beautiful and uh, beautifully sited estate on the top of the hill there in, in South London. And then you can go back, I think, if you go back to the Homes for Heroes era, some of the very earliest, and actually pre- preceding that, I think the old Oak Estate in Hammersmith, just, be- built, just before the First World War, it's genuinely a cottage, a, a garden suburb. It, it could be a sort of, it could be Letchworth or whatever. It's, just, it's so beautifully designed. Dover House Estate in Putney, early post-war. What is it that sets these particular states apart? Is it just like the quality of the, the effort that's gone into the architecture? They aren't just like, you know... A repeat of the estate down the road that's kind of dropped in a new site is like they are specifically designed for their position, or is there something else? Yeah, well, I think certainly build quality. So I think you know so, um, that that's important, and uh, in terms of their kind of lasting uh, legacy, as it were. But I think yes, I think uh, attention paid. I mean, architect design. Generally, generally speaking, I'm not an architectural historian, but I think uh, good architect design, estate by a good architect, really does make a difference in it. And uh, I think. It's, 
in terms of the kind of uh, the layout and positioning of, 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 the, of the blocks in Churchill Garden, for example, but, but the sheer quality, the kind of arts and craft inspiration of, of Old Oak and Dover House, I think you can see the real attention there, the real concern for, for, for quality and appearance. Okay, well, the book is called Municipal Dreams and it's out in paperback. Is it out now? It's out now. Fantastic. Well, it's, a, it's an excellent book and you should buy it right now. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show. And I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.